Well, good morning. My name is Rick Hutton. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you this morning on this beautiful, yet I'm guessing quite hot Sunday morning. It's good for us to be together. Um, We are in a sermon series on the book of James. We've been looking at this book for the last few weeks. And James is a great book if you are looking for a book where it's easy to read and see practical applications almost immediately. It's maybe the most practical book or the easiest to understand of all the books in the Bible when it comes to practical application. And as we know, James is made up of about 12 different lessons, if you will, and each one of those lessons stands on its own. So if you haven't been here, if this is your first Sunday here with us this summer, um, that's okay, you'll be able to jump right in. But there's also, with all 12 lessons, a recurring theme that runs from start to finish of this letter. And while James is easy to read, and there's easy principles to see for practical application. It is not a simplistic book. It's not just a do this or don't do that kind of book. There is something deeper that goes on. It's very clear though about addressing problems like favoritism or the importance of controlling our tongues or even how our faith and works interact with one another, which is what we'll talk about in a few minutes today. But at a deeper level, what James is talking about is this idea of having an integrated faith. Having our faith impact and influence every single part of every moment of our lives. And so what James does as he writes this letter is he challenges us not to do more or to be better versions of ourselves as some self-help people might have us do or be, but he challenges us to live as Jesus calls us to live And as we do that, we're made more and more into the image of Jesus. And so as we prepare to hear from God's word, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you that we can gather together as your people to give praise and honor and glory to you. And we thank you too, Lord, for this time now that we have to study your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, that it is just as relevant today and just as powerful today as it was when it was first written. And we ask, Lord God, that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying, that you would soften our hearts, that we would respond to what you say to us. And Lord Jesus, I ask that you would please keep me out of your way. And we pray this in your name, amen. Hear God's word from James chapter two. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you, one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see 
that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was four years old, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Uh, A few months later, my dad was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And then about two or so years later, my brother, Tim, was diagnosed with type one diabetes. We think there's a genetic connection. (laughs) But what that meant in my house, I grew up with an awful lot of information about diabetes. It meant that for the next eight to 10 years or so, as I was growing up and moving towards adolescence and preparing to take care of diabetes more on my own than, than with my parents' help, I had all sorts of knowledge available to me. My parents took excellent care of me. They took me to the doctor, they took me to specialists. We studied different things. We talked about how much food to eat and what's good to eat, what's not. How much insulin to take in light of the activity that I've engaged in. All of these things I was swimming in 24 seven for all of those years. I had an incredible wealth of knowledge when it came to type one diabetes. And so as I moved into adolescence, and began to take care of myself a little bit more, and especially when I moved into college and my parents were 600 miles away from me, I had this great knowledge that I could put into practice so that I would be healthy. But what if, what if I didn't do anything with that knowledge? What if I decided I didn't like needles, so I'm gonna stop taking my insulin? What if I decided to stop exercising? What if I decided that I just wanted to eat whatever I wanted because it looked good and tasted good? What good would all this knowledge about how to be a healthy type one diabetic, what good would that do me if I didn't do anything with it? To an extent, this is what James is getting at as he talks to us about our faith. He's saying that having an intellectual faith, having a knowledge of faith, that isn't enough. That kind of faith isn't a saving faith. A saving faith is a faith which we know and we do. And so in these brief verses, he unpacks two different kinds of faiths, if you will. The first faith he talks about is what we would call a false, or to use the terms that we've been using in this this series, a transactional faith. The second would be then a genuine faith, or in the terms of this sermon series that we've been in, a transformational faith. And so for us today in our time together, I just want us to look at these two different kinds of faiths and what genuine faith can be like for us every day. So let's think about this false faith first. There's a saying that goes, the best lies have enough truth in them to make them believable. Now I'm not saying that there is such a thing as a good lie or that there is a best lie, but the phrase is getting at this idea that if we need to believe or if we, have to, we end up believing a lie, it's because it looks true. There are elements of truth within this lie that make us believe it. And the same is true for this false faith. There are elements of it that look good and yet it is still false. And just like with any lie, In the end, false faith will be shown for what it is. And in that end, that's with dire consequences, eternal consequences. But false faith also has dire consequences even in the here and now. But before it gets to the end, before sometimes false faith is realized as it plays all the way out, 
we may not recognize that we are living a false faith because it looks good. It has so many elements that are accurate to what a genuine faith would be. We don't realize faith that we live may be a false faith. And if we don't realize that, then perhaps those around us, well, certainly those around us, wouldn't recognize that either. When something looks good on the outside, it's really hard to see what's at the heart of it. But false faith looks good on the outside, but it has no heart. James uses words like dead and useless to describe it. And I know in our lives, when something is useless, that's usually pretty obvious. When something is dead, that's pretty clear as well. So if false faith is described as dead and useless, why is it that it's so hard for so many of us, me included, to see in our own lives? Well, James unpacks three different things about false faith that makes it hard to see as not being real. The first thing that James points out is that false faith, it says the right things. If we look at verses 15 and 16, James is laying out this hypothetical situation, right? Where someone says to a person who's without clothes or daily food, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed. Now in the whole context, it's really easy to see James is setting that up as problematic. But if we just take what's said, there's nothing wrong with it. It's good, it's nice. Maybe this hypothetical Christian went home and prayed for the person in need. Have you ever done that? I have. I've gone by a homeless shelter and seen people lined up outside, men, women, even children, waiting to get food, waiting to get clothes. And I thought to myself, oh, those poor people. And I prayed for them right then and there. But that was all I did. I left it at that. I felt good about myself when I was done. But that's where I left it. If we find ourselves in situations like that, saying the right things, but not doing anything, perhaps we need to reevaluate what kind of faith we have. False faith says the right things, but it also believes the right things. Look at the first half of verse 19. James says, you say that there is one God, good, What he's getting at there, remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. And so when they declare that there was one God, they're going back to Deuteronomy 6, to the Shema, a keystone passage for them in their faith. And so he's affirming that their doctrine, it's good. But then there's the second half of verse 19, where he says, even the demons believe that and shudder. Verse 19 is a terrifying verse because we can believe the right things and be in the same category of faith as demons. That scares me, it's scared me more and more as I've thought about this passage over the week. The demons, they shudder, they shudder in fear. They shudder actually out of respect and in awe of God because he is so great. And for us, we may not literally shake or literally shudder before God, but maybe we start doing more. We start doing right actions. And this is, this is the third element of a false faith that makes it look so good, is that false faith says the right things, it believes the right things, and it even does the right things. Shuddering for demons was out of respect for God. We show respect for God by what we do. And doing good things, well, it's good, but is it just shuddering, or are we doing it out of a genuine faith? 
False faith looks really good. It does the right things. And when we do good deeds, but our hearts aren't in tune with God, we're practicing false faith. When we do them to feel good about ourselves or to earn God's approval or even to manipulate God into doing what we want because we've done good things, we practice a false faith and not genuine faith. Now, please don't hear me saying stop doing good things. We need to continue to do good things. We do good things because even in the midst of our hearts being in the wrong place, God's glory will be made known because God is greater even than our deepest, darkest motivations. So go sign up to help with Jobs for Life. Go on a mission trip. Teach children's Sunday school. Get involved with a homeless ministry. Do good things. But also, check what's going on in your heart as you do them. All the good things that we do could end up being just shuddering and not signs of a genuine faith. False faith, it looks good on the outside. It says the right things, it believes the right things, it does the right things, but ultimately it's no faith at all. It will eventually lead not to life, but to eternal death. The good news is though, is that James, he's not writing to condemn us, to make us feel bad, to feel this immense level of guilt. He's writing so that we won't be deceived by false faith, that we'll be able to see what real genuine faith truly looks like so that we can live, so that we will have life, so that others will have life. He wants us to have a genuine faith. That is why he writes this letter. And so we wanna look at then the elements of a genuine or transformational faith. Now, if you were to, to go up to my family, um, ask my wife, ask my, my son, if I had a lot of running clothes, they would tell you that I do. And I would agree with them. I have a lot of running clothes. I have the shoes, the socks, the shirts, the shorts, the pants, the jackets, the hats, the gloves. I even have those really cool headlamps, one of those, you know, that you look really, it's not cool, but I have one. But if I don't run, putting that gear on, having the gear, that doesn't make me a runner. If I wanna be a runner, I need to go out and run. This is what James is getting at with genuine faith and action. Eugene Peterson in the message translation of this section of scripture puts it like this. God talk without God actions is outrageous nonsense. If we claim to have faith but there's no deeds backing that up, it is ridiculous for us to make such a claim. There is a deep-rooted connection between faith and works. Now, I've just said, though, that false faith can have the right-looking actions. It can have the right-looking works. So what's the difference, then, between actions done out of false faith and actions done after genuine faith? Well, let me use the running example again. I'm guessing that many of us here, uh, just based on conversations I've had over the years, many of us don't find running very pleasurable. Uh, I don't blame you for that. It's, it does not begin as a pleasurable thing. In fact, it took me a long time to get to a point where I enjoyed running, and now I look forward to it um, each time I get out to run. I do truly enjoy it. There was a change in me that came from somewhere as I ran. And I'm not gonna say it was a heart change necessarily. That's a little too strong of a phrase. But I now enjoy running. It was an internal change that has spurred me on to continue to run, even on days where perhaps it would be more difficult and the former me would have just not done it. 
This is the kind of heart change that James is saying will bring about doing actions. It begins with our heart. It begins with a change there and our actions flow from what's going on in our heart. Our works in and of themselves, they don't save us. But genuine faith does have works. James is not contradicting the apostle Paul as he says these things. Paul says very clearly in Romans 3.28 that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if James though is not contradicting Paul, what is he talking about? Well, what he's saying to the Christians then, the ones he was writing to at the time and to us, is with genuine faith, works will follow. Genuine faith inevitably leads to good works. And that's because of the change, the transformation that's happened in the hearts of those who truly believe. When we think about genuine faith, it's not faith versus works, it's faith and works together. James uses the example of Abraham as a man with genuine faith. And in the story of, in Genesis, where we read all about Abraham's calling and how God and Abraham were together, we see Abraham's faith in action on many occasions. And in verse 22 of the chapter we read this morning, James says Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. Now there's one Greek word that we translate were working together. And it's the Greek word that we get the English word synergy from. And so it's this idea of two things, and here it's faith and works, coming together to produce even more than they would have on their own. And it's not only that, James tells us that what Abraham did, his, and his faith matured. It reached the goal that God desired it to reach. Abraham's faith led him to do what God asked of him. And when he did this, his, his faith grew. And as the rest of the Abraham story tells us, the nations were ultimately blessed through him. Abraham did what someone with genuine faith does. He believed God and he acted on his belief. God blessed him and then he blessed the generations to come. And so as we put our faith into work, it not only impacts us, but also those around us, even those we don't realize are being touched by what we've done. Now this sounds great, it's good for Abraham, but what does this mean for us? How do we get to this place? How do we get to the point where genuine faith leads us to action? Well, the truth is we can't get there on our own. Our own willpower isn't enough. Our own desire isn't enough. Our own wanting to do good things is not going to be enough because it's only through the intervening work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we will come to a place of genuine faith. When the Holy Spirit enables us to see the wonder of what we have in Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, that's when we come to have a genuine faith. When we trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord over all that we do, that's genuine faith. And Jesus demonstrated the ultimate work of faith when he submitted to the will of his Father. He gave up everything for us. He lived the life that we were created to live. He died the death that we deserve to die and he rose from the dead so that we could be in a right relationship with our heavenly father. When we recognize this, when we see our own spiritual poverty and the riches that we now have in Christ, that's when we respond with thanksgiving, with gratitude to God for what he has done. And it's demonstrated this gratitude through faith expressed in our works. 
And as we continue to grow in the recognition of our own spiritual poverty and our need for Jesus and the riches we have in him, God will open our eyes. He'll open our eyes to those who are physically poor, who are materially poor, emotionally poor, and spiritually poor, those all around us. They could be sitting next to us, in front of us, behind us, living next door to us. Maybe we just see them on the street, but God will open our eyes and our hearts to them. He'll give us a heart to care for them, to reach out to them, to serve them. That's transformational. That's transformational in genuine faith where we're changed from self-centered people to Jesus-centered people, which makes us then other people-centered. We'll love one another as Jesus has loved us. This is genuine faith, to have our hearts changed to be in tune with the heart of Jesus. And so we express our faith then by joining him in what he's doing. Now, if you're like me and you're recognizing that the works that you're doing are perhaps a little more on the shuddering side of things than on the genuine faith expression side of things, that's okay. God knows our hearts, he knows what we need, and he will continue to work through you in the good deeds, and he will work in you to bring about a genuine faith. So please keep serving, please start serving, and ask God to tune your heart to his. Genuine faith can't be separated from works, and our works can't be separated from our heart. But what does this look like on an everyday life, in everyday life for us. How can our genuine faith be expressed? Well, it begins on a personal level. It begins with devotional life, finding time to pray, to read God's word so that we know his heart and he shapes our hearts into what he desires. It's also a call to personal holiness. We don't want a gospel of of just sin management where we just stop doing the bad things, start doing good things. That's not what it's about by itself but there is a call to give up the things that are keeping us from a deeper relationship with God and to take on things that enable us to grow in our communion with him. Genuine faith is expressed through giving up some things and taking on others so that we would know the heart of God even more. So it begins with us as individuals, but it's not supposed to stay individualized. We are called to be sent out to others. Now, as James has made this hypothetical situation about the person in need, he did that knowing that that was a need that his church at the time was dealing with. And it's a need that our church is dealing with as well. Maybe we don't see people who are in need around us, even when they're right in front of us. But as we grow in genuine faith, we'll see those in need and we'll go to them. Now look, that may not be easy for us because our natural inclination, because of our sinful nature, is to retreat into ourselves. But we're also called to take a step. Paul says to keep in step with the Spirit. We have action that we should take. And Paul also says to express our faith in love. And so we work out our faith in love, demonstrating this love through the caring of others. We move towards them, having God's heart towards them. And as we do this, we see our hearts changed towards them. Now, if you've ever been in love, you know what it means to have your heart changed, changed towards another person. If you've ever written a love letter, or maybe a love email, or 
text. A letter probably is better, but email and text. Anyway, in those things, as we think about another person, our love for them grows. Our desire to be with them grows. Our desire for the best for them grows as we express this love for them. And this is true for as we serve others. Our love for them grows. Our compassion for them grows. Our care for them grows because of what God is doing in us through Jesus Christ. And as we serve others, our love for Jesus grows too. So genuine faith involves devotional commitment for us. It involves personal holiness and a movement towards others and a changing of our hearts to those around us. But there's one other expression of faith, of genuine faith that James talks about here. And that's that genuine faith is willing to take risks. It's willing to take risks for the gospel. The examples that James uses of Abraham and Rahab, they took risks with their faith. Abraham risked the future of his family line by putting Isaac on the altar. He did that in faith because that's what God had called him to. Rahab, in a similar way, risked her life and the life of her family as she hid the spies. She could have been killed, but she knew that her faith in God was even greater than that. Genuine faith requires us to take risks, and it gives us courage to do that. Now, these risks that we take, it could be something like losing a social standing we have with our peers at school or at work. It could be something like the lost opportunity of career advancement because of our faith. Or as many Christians outside of the United States know, it could even mean risking our lives to proclaim the gospel. Genuine faith involves risk. And with risk, there's cost. But as we see the wonder of Jesus and as we understand what we have in and through him, the cost that we pay now is nothing compared to what we will receive when Jesus comes again and makes all things new. So as we close, I just wanna be clear, works don't save us. Genuine faith in Jesus saves us and with this genuine faith comes works. The two things are in concert together. And these works, they've been given to us by God so that we can express our faith, being made mature in it. And as we do that, we bless others by God's power. James closes this section with these words, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. May we be people who have a living, genuine faith, a faith that is integrated into every part of our lives so that Jesus Christ and him alone would be made obvious in us and to all who see us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your desire for us to have genuine, true, and living faith. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring our faith to maturity, that we would grow more and more into the image of Jesus. Enable us to do that. Enable us to be people of genuine faith, that others would see you in us and all we do. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.